This morning we finish up with part three of the sermon series on Judges chapter 17 and 18. We still have a ways to go in the book of Judges. However, we've spent the last two weeks, this will be our third week on these two chapters to tell the story of Micah, the Levite, and the Danites. And the main source, excuse me, the main point of this story, as we've seen, is concerned with false religion. And and as you know, false religion fills the world, and it takes many different forms. And while these two chapters in Judges do speak about idolatry, that is not their primary concern. Their primary concern is syncretism. That is, the, the, the mixing of false worship with true worship. And the point here that we see is not about so much false gods, although we've encountered the false gods in the book of Judges as we've traveled through it. Note that in what we've seen of the story of Micah so far, there's really been no mention of the Baals or the Ashtaroth, which cropped up continually in the earlier chapters that we've gone through and that, that uh, the Israelites turned to and thus um, brought judgment upon themselves in the form of foreign ev- invaders. Now, we're talking now about the worship of the one true God, Yahweh, our Lord, in the wrong way. And this is amongst the people of God. This is not amongst pagans. These, this is amongst the Israelites who have been given the scriptures, the word of God, the oracle of God. And at the center of this synchristic false religion are Micah's carved metal image. Recall that in the Hebrew, it's the Pesel and the Masakah. And this will again figure prominently as we, as we finish this account. And also his household gods, the Teraphim, and the young Levite, the Na'ar. Now I want, to, I want you to remember or bring it to your attention if you did not previously know, if you haven't been here for the previous parts of this account, is Na'ar, the, which means, which are translations, my ESV translates as a young man. Well, when we say young man, we're thinking of someone that could be, it could be an adult male. He's just younger than perhaps me, which most of you are young men to me. <laughs> but in the Hebrew, this means something younger. This is, this is not a mature man, and we must realize that. This is, this is a, a male who is below the, um, the Levitical age of service in worship to Yahweh. And Na'ar in ancient Hebrew covers the range from an infant up to the cusp of manhood. So we don't know exactly how old he is, but the point is he's too young to be doing what he's doing. And this Na'ar actually becomes an idol to Micah, and we will see also he becomes an idol to the Danites later. Um, the closing of the, of the last chapter, chapter um, 17, then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. This Levite is a talisman or good luck charm, essentially, um, to Micah. 
And we see a flipping of authority from Micah, the, the, uh, the older, mature man, to the young boy or the, the, the youngster, the Na'ar. Um, Micah says to him, as do the Danites later, they will do the same thing. He says to him, be to me a father and a priest, this to a young boy. Now, as I was preparing the sermon, it made me think of when I was a young boy. And there was this idea that um, was very prevalent, very popular at the time about children choosing their own way, his or her own way. And if you're in my generation, you may recall the name of of a very famous pediatrician who it seemed like most parents followed him and had their book in their house, and this was Dr. Benjamin Spock. Not Spock, the Leonard Nimoy Spock from the TV show. This was a fellow that came earlier. And he really kind of um, started the trend towards permissive parenting. So, the popular way of parenting was, to, like I said, let children find their own way. Make, let them make their own choices. And this even included the subject of religion. And in my extended family, um, there was really a, a, quite a mixture of religious traditions. On my mother's side, there was Roman Catholicism and Baptists. On the other side was Mormonism and Christian science. And all of the family, except one set of grandparents, really had left their respective churches. And there was no really thought or inclination at all towards religion or towards God. I would say everyone in the family was a practicing, if if not actually a professing, atheist. They just didn't talk about God. It was as if God didn't exist. It wasn't part of my um, life growing up as as a very young boy. And then one day, I was in the garage seeing what I could get into, and I came across a Roman Catholic crucifix. I had no idea what it was. But it looked kind of cool, and I brought it into the house, and I asked my mom, you know, what, what is this? And she explained to me that it was uh, a crucifix that had belonged to her father, my grandfather, who had passed away before I was born, I never met him, who was a staunch Irish Roman Catholic. And... Um, I was asking my mom questions. I'm very curious about it. And then I asked her, why don't we go to church? And she explained to me that um, she had been taken out of parochial school and they had stopped attending church due to the fact that, in her words, the, the priests and the nuns were not good people. Well, she wouldn't explain any further. Um, and then she kind of ended the conversation with this idea. She told me, when you're older, you can decide for yourself what religion you want to be. You just, you know, when you get to that age, you can, you can pick. And as misguided as that may seem now to faithful Christians, that really was a prevalent attitude um, in our culture at the time. And that, I think, was a strong indicator that, by and large, faith in God was, was waning in the United States. Do we let or should we let children decide matters of lifelong impact? I was just left to find my own way, basically. What do we do today with our children? 
children that can barely tell their right hand from their left, when a God-fearing nation turns away from God, there's judgment that follows, destruction and collapse. This is the lesson that we read time and time again in Scripture, and also, brothers and sisters, we read it in the pages of history. Societies that turn away from God that were once Christian grow into a society where children start off worshiping the God they choose, and then the society ends up allowing children to choose other things to the point now where children are being allowed to choose whether they're actually boys or girls, and medical procedures follow this decision. Well, the prophet Isaiah warned of God's judgment on Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And this was manifested, he said, in basically the removal of good leadership and destruction of the social order. In chapter 3, verse 4 of the book of Isaiah, the Lord, speaking through his prophet, says, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. Now, just as, a, as an aside, and to help us understand our text today, that the boys here are na'ar. It's the same root word in Hebrew as this Levite functioning as a priest. Now, this does not necessarily pertain literally to Judah. There were no infant kings in Judah. The prophet, the Lord speaking through the prophet, is speaking figuratively here. And this is a condition I would say we now find ourselves in. This has come to pass for us. Our rulers behave and govern figuratively as children. While children literally are allowed to rule their own lives and the lives of others. This is not the social order that God has established for humanity. Children today have power in ways that even ancient monarchs did not have. No ancient monarch had the power to command a man to be a woman or a woman to be a man. But children nowadays seemingly have that power, that authority. And this is the condition which Judges chapter 17 and 18 are now concerned with. Micah has set a na'ar, a boy, over his shrine his house of gods. And this is actually God's judgment for the apostasy of Israel. Every bit as much as the previous invasions from foreign oppressors that we have seen. But this is more insidious because it is not easily recognizable. You don't have someone coming over the border to attack you. The rot, the evil is coming from within. And notice, as we read in Judges, or any part of Scripture, that evil does, very rarely does it come suddenly, like a flash of lightning. And that's the same thing we experience in our society today, that evil has slowly grown and grown in an insidious fashion. So this evil is not recognizable because the people have turned away from God. 
God teaches us, God shows us what is right. When we ignore him, when we turn away from him, when we pretend he does not exist, we have no way of knowing the way to rightness. Judges chapter 18, verse 1. I'm just going to uh, deal with the first sentence here, 1a. We come to the second occurrence of what we have discussed last week, the no king refrain. 1a says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Now this is the shorter version of the two forms of that refrain that emphasize actually the entire theme of Judges. Things are not as they should be in the land of Canaan. Now, the intent, what God has demonstrated, what we see in Scripture, is that God has given this land to the Israelites. He's taken it away from the inhabitants of the land due to their extreme evil. They are to be cast out. Israel is given the command by the Lord to drive the Canaanites out of the land and take possession of the land. The Lord has promised to be with them in this task. They're not doing it alone. But not only are things not as they should be in the land of Canaan, things are not as they should be with the Israelites. Due to the rebellion of the generation which was brought out of Egypt in the Exodus, Israel was not allowed to enter the promised land until that generation had died. They died wandering in the wilderness. It was left to the next generation. They were given the task of entering the promised land that Yahweh had given to them. This was the time of Joshua, and it was a time of bright promise. However, with, however, with the death of Joshua, there was no strong leader to take his place. It was the time of the judges, and Israel began to unravel. Instead of driving out the wicked inhabitants of the land as the Lord had commanded them, they became like these inhabitants. They absorbed their culture, most importantly, their religious practices. Their life as Israelites became syncretic. They tried to be followers of Yahweh and followers of pagan gods at the same time. So this theme of judges expressed in the no king refrain gives us two views of Israel, actually. There's the longer version of this refrain that we saw last week. And I remind you that, that this longer refrain says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This long version tells us what is wrong at the micro level. It gives us a really close view of the problem, and that was extreme individualism. Does that sound like problems that we have today? This is one thing that I think is just, we need to continually be aware of as we read God's word, how it applies to us today. This just isn't ancient history. This just isn't old theology in the Old Testament. This is very applicable to how we live and what's going on now. And this extreme individualism is evident in this current account that we're examining with Micah, the Levite, and the Danites. Micah is doing whatever he wants as far as religious worship, mixing worship of Yahweh with idols, as does the Levite, 
And later, as we will see, the Danites do this also. Now, the short version, which we're looking at today, which is in our text today, that, that is, in those days there was no king in Israel, that takes a, a higher view. It emphasizes a lack of a strong central authority as the primary problem as, during this time in Judges. By implication, what underlies the writer's point is that a king, a good king, a proper king, would not allow this sort of nonsense that Micah is doing and that the Danites will do, but even worse. Now, was there a king in Israel at this time? From a secular historical viewpoint, no, there wasn't. Israel had no human monarch up to this time in history. However, as a people raised by Yahweh and set apart for him as his own inheritance, as the Lord's own inheritance, Israel does have a king and has always had a king, as do all people. However, Israel has a special revelation of Scripture where they're told they have a king. The rest of the world, the nations, the Gentiles, had just conveniently turned away from that fact because they did not want the true God as their king. So the Bible attests to the kingship of the Lord God and his sovereignty. We see this from the very beginning in the Bible, in Genesis, in the garden, which is called paradise in the original language, and it's a loan word from the Persian, and it means the royal garden surrounding a king's palace. So we start off at a king's palace, his garden. And then we end up at the end of the book in Revelation, again, in a garden where there's the water of life flowing from the throne of the king. We are back in the presence of the king. And if there's, as, as many of you know, there's so many points in between Genesis and Revelation that talk about the Lord's sovereignty, that talk about his kingship. As an example, there's an enthronement psalm, Psalm 47, that, I, that I'd like us to take a look at. Psalm 47. It's a short one. It's nine verses. It's the, that's the entire psalm. And it really encapsulates everything about God being our king. And it starts off at a high point. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. See, the fact that he's our king is a good thing. You know, we, as, as people living in a constitutional republic who overthrew a king to become free people, um, a king doesn't seem good to us. But, but notice what the Bible says. This is a wonderful thing. It's a joyful thing. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Not just the Jews that are worshiping him in this psalm, but us who have been joined to spiritual Israel, and even to those who do not know God, he is their king. The psalmist goes on, verse 3, He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. See, a great king subdues his enemies. And that's what the psalmist is saying that our king has done. Verse 4, He chose our heritage for us. Our heritage in the Hebrew, Nahalat, refers in other places to the promised land. The psalmist is giving thanks for this land that they have been given. 
The pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. This is the Gentile people, who, the, who many Jews at this time, as Pastor Steve was talking about this morning at, at the 10 a.m. Uh, Bible study, they did not understand that this salvation from the Lord was to include all peoples, even, even the nations. But the psalmist gets it, right? He's inspired to write about this. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. When a king sits on his throne in the ancient Near Eastern mind, the context of that is that king has conquered all of his enemies. Kings did not sit on their thrones and rest while their enemies were active against them. We are given a a picture of a king over a a kingdom in which there is no contest, no real contest for his throne anymore. No one can dethrone him. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. That can be a little bit confusing in the ESV. You can translate it, the princes of the people gather along with the people of the God of Abraham. So that's the Gentiles and the Jews together. For the shields of the earth, shields of the earth refer to human rulers, because for this is what a good ruler does. A good ruler governing, established by God, is a shield against evil for his people. I ask you, do we experience that today? That's something to ponder. For the shields of the earth, these rulers, belong to God. Every king, every ruler, every president, every prime minister belongs to God. Most do not recognize that. But scripture tells us that very clearly. God is highly exalted. He is highly exalted as the psalmist ends. What a declaration of God's kingship we see in this psalm. And the psalmist is saying that this has been true in the past. It's true in his present. And the psalmist is saying this will be true in the future. This will be true forevermore. Past, present, and future. This is a fact. This brings us to my first point. Point number one. The sovereignty of God is not up for debate. The sovereignty of God is not up for debate. We must not understand the declaration of the writer of Judges when he states, in those days there was no king in Israel. He's not proclaiming that Yahweh is not king at this time. No, he means that Israel is behaving as though they had no king. When in fact, yes, they did have a king. Have a king. They no longer properly recognize the Lord as their king. If you recognize your true king, you don't go off and find other little kings and add them to your king. That, what is that called? That is called treason. That is, that is, the, that is the, the highest crime in the land. Much like most people today, who refuse to recognize God's sovereignty over creation and their lives. That's what's going on at this time in Judges. And recall last week how we talked about that this part of Judges, 17, 18, and the ending, the sad stories 
uh, at the end of Judges, as one commentator calls them, are not chronological that follow after the time of Samson necessarily. This is stuff that's occurring during, these, these tales are occurring during the time of Judges. But what we do see, and what we should notice, is that things are, have gotten progressively worse during the time of Judges, the time of no king, the time of every person doing what was right in their own eyes. Now, when I was a police officer, there was this weird thing that happened. Really, it started in the 1970s, but I really didn't encounter probably until the 80s and the 90s. And with the advent of the internet, it kind of went crazy for a while. There was this movement that was called the Sovereign Citizen Movement. And there was these people who, who decided or came up with this idea, I'm not sure how, but that, that our government did not have authority over them, that they did not have to pay taxes, that they did not have to register their vehicles, they did not to have, have to have driver's licenses, uh, or nor did the police have lawful authority to demand those things from them if they've got pulled over. Because um, to, to uh, do those things, to pay your taxes, to get a license, to register your vehicle, meant you voluntarily became a subject of the Corporation of the United States of America. <clears throat> I don't know much about this stuff, but I had to deal with uh, some of these people. Um, pulling them over and walking up to the car and, have, and just looking up at the side window, rolled up and asking the driver, you know, sir, would you roll your window down? I need to see your license and registration. And have him just... Well, sadly, they eventually learned that just because they denied the authority of the law over them, the law did not go away. And this is like God. If we deny God's authority over us, if we shake our head at him, no, you don't exist. I don't accept you. God does not go away. And these people that I had to deal with, eventually a judge explained that fact to them. They were hauled before a judge. And... You know, it wasn't a big deal, but I don't know if they learned their lesson. But it, it's this, it was the same idea of, in a sense, of um, just not accepting, wanting to accept uh, any authority. So now we come to the final narrative in this account, which is much longer and more complex than the previous two narratives we've looked at. This is why it's, there's three parts to this account. We first had... The, the story of Micah and his mother that we looked at. Next, it was Micah and the Levite. Now we come to uh, Micah, the Levite, and the Danites get added to the mix. So let's get into this. We're going we're gonna to look at Judges 18, um, verse 1b, the last part of it, and, and verse 2, just to start. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. Now just to clarify, Dan, the tribe of Dan, had been given an inheritance. The Danites had been given their land allotment. It was south of Ephraim's, where Micah lives, where his house 
of God's is. It was uh, west of Benjamin's land, and, and, there, and Dan's land extended all the way to the coast, and it was north of Judah's land, which was underneath them. However, uh, the book of Joshua tells us that the Danites lost their territory. They lost their lands when the Amorites, which were a fierce, wicked people under King Sihon, who, who the, the, this, this, the Amorites are associated with the giant clans that the spies saw when they went into the land of Canaan back at the time of the Exodus. So these Amorites drove them up into the hills, and the Danites were unable to come down back to the plains where they could you know, engage in their, in their agricultural work, their pastoral work, where they could support themselves. They're, they're hiding out um, in the mountains, basically. And rather than seeking the Lord's assistance, you know, praying to him and carrying out the task they had been given, they sought another way that they felt was more suitable uh, to them. They, they apparently thought they knew better than the Lord as far as what they should do and what was better for them. So the actions of the tribe of Dan and the selection and commissioning of these spies, these five men, to find land that would be easier for them to possess, effectively underlines the message of, in those days there was no king in Israel. We've got these Danites just doing what they want. So five able men are chosen to go on a reconnaissance mission. If this reminds you of another story in the Bible, in the Exodus, that's good. You're tracking this properly. Because remember the spies that were chosen at the time of Moses to do a reconnaissance into the land of Canaan. Now, this, this account of the Danites parallels the original account of coming into the land of Canaan. But there's some remarkable differences, and the, the writer is clearly setting this up for the reader, the hearer, to, to compare these two events. One under the guidance, the authority, and the direction of the Lord God. The other, something that men decide on their own that they're going to do. And the only direction for the Danites to go, remember how I described their territory, is north, up out of the territory given to Israel by the Lord. They had, so they had the, these spies, these five men had to travel through the central highlands of Ephraim to get to this new territory that had not been allotted to any other tribes and to get away from these horrible Amorites who were just, you know, whittling down the tribe of Dan to where there weren't very many of them left. And in their travels, these five men come to the house of Micah where they spend the night. And let's see what happens in verses 3 and 6. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. So verse 3, we see that these Danite spies recognize the Levite, the Na'ar, by his voice. What this implies is they know him from a previous encounter, which we don't know, you know when that was or, or, or where it was, but they're coming from the same area. They're traveling north. Their paths is crossed. And the familiar tone of the conversation 
that they have with him in verse 3b, when they ask him those series of questions, implies that they know him and they want to know what he's doing. And in verse 4, he tells them what Micah had done for him. That's the, the net Bible translation, which I think um, you know, makes it clearer for us in the ESV. He, that is Micah, has hired me and I've become his priest. Now recall last week when we were talking about Micah and the Levite in verse 12 of chapter 17, we read Micah ordained the Levite. Micah took this authority upon himself to ordain this Na'ar. And literally in Hebrew, as you, I hope you recall, it, this ordination, this term ordained means filled the hand. So Micah filled the hand of the Levite. Now, it's ironic in in the Levite's explanation to the Danites, it's like he's taking this figuratively filling the hand literally because he's saying, Micah's hired me. He's put silver into my hand. He's filled my hand with silver. And because of this payment, I am a priest to him. He's been hired to do a job for which he's being paid as Micah's personal priest. And as we shall see, this mercenary view of priesthood that Micah and the Levite hold is not lost on the Danites. They're going to pick up this view also. This brings us to my second point, point number two. God cannot be bought. God cannot be bought. Even though bought and paid for hirelings like the Levite may infest a house of worship and are willing to literally and figuratively sell their souls on the cheap, the Lord is untouched. He's unaffected by the servants of mammon. Like our Lord Jesus said at the time of his earthly ministry, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. You will love one and hate the other. In all of this, the Lord remains untouched. God, Yahweh, Lord God, is unaffected by this. He's unchanged and unchangeable. Your soul, our souls, are our most valuable possession. Do not bargain away eternity for something that you will have only temporarily in this life. As our Lord Jesus said, Mark records in his gospel, Chapter 8, verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Rhetorically, the Lord is saying, there is nothing more valuable. Once you have frittered that away, you cannot get it back. It it is of the Lord's to return it to you in a way of salvation, speaking eternally. So verses 5 and 6, back to Judges, here chapter 18, the Danites asked the Levite for an oracle, that is a divine message, as to whether God will bring them success on the reconnaissance mission. Now why do they do this? Well, probably because, remember, they're, they're now in Micah's house of gods. So they see the ephod that Micah has made, the, 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 the priestly garment, and the teraphim, the, the household gods, both of which are associated with this oracle thing, with, with communication from the divine. 
And true to his character, as a priest for hire, the Levite tells the Danites exactly what they want to hear. Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Now, the preceding pronouncement of peace, shalom, here would indicate, would mean that Yahweh is looking upon their mission favorably. So they happily set off. Verse 7, Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. So the Danite spies come to the city-state, Laish, which is um, north of the allotted territory of Israel. It's 29 miles or so north of the Sea of Galilee, and it's at the headwaters of the Jordan River. And unlike the warlike Amorites who have driven the Danites out of their territory, these people lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians. Well, the Sidon, the Sidonians, it's a coastal city on the Mediterranean that they were seafaring people and they were engaged in commerce. They were commerce traders. They weren't fighters. They weren't warriors. So these are not, these are peaceful people, more interested in, in trade, in business than they are in making war. And we're told they had no dealings with anyone, means there's, they have no formal ties. There's no alliances to anyone, any other people groups. In other words, if the Danites come and make war on them, there's no one coming to help them. They don't have any alliance agreements. It was, this was the type of place the Danites were looking for. It's inhabited. It's a functioning city. It's not ruins. It's like if we take this, it's good to go. It's like, you know, it's just turnkey ready for us to inhabit. It was defenseless. And there wouldn't be any consequences if they seized it. They were far away from everybody. The mention of the Sidonians says they were, the Sidonians were far away. They must have been engaged in trade is what, what the implication is with the Sidonians. But the Sidonians, the seafaring people, aren't going to come up north of the central highlands uh, to assist um, these people in Laish. There's nothing to keep the Danites from stealing this city from its inhabitants. And as the spies gazed at this city, it must have seemed that the Levites' oracle was true that Yahweh did seem to favor their mission. Now, verses 8 through 10. And when they, that is the spies, came to their brothers, they returned back to um, where the Danites were hiding up in the hills of their territory. When they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaal, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it's very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. These spies report back to the other Danites, and doesn't this sound just like, kind of like what 
the, the, the spies who were sent into Canaan, when they came back, they reported a, a wonderful, productive land, didn't they? But what did they warn of? What were they worried about? There are fierce, gigantic people in that land that have fortified cities. Most of the spies said, we shouldn't go in. We've got to pass this up. Here, it's again a good land, but it's like, these people, we're going to walk right over them. This is just, they're, just, they're, just, they're just open. We're good. Let's, let's go do this. And let's not wait. This, let's not pass up this opportunity. As they said, their view, backed by the, the Levite's oracle, is God has given this city into your hands. Verses 11 and 12. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaal and went up and encamped at Kiriat Yarim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahainah Don, or that means Camp of Dan. To this day, behold, it was west, west of Kiriat Yarim, which means town of forests. So the Danites begin their migration. You may notice there's only 600 armed men. And this is much smaller than any of the military forces we've seen thus far the Israelites uh, put out in the field during the time of the judges. This tells us how tough it's been with the Amorites. The Amorites have whittled down the tribe of, of Dan to where there's only 600 men left. So they're thinking, if we, if, unless we go up and take uh, Laish, we are going to perish here at the hands of the Amorites. Verses 13 through 21. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in those houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. So here we see the three strands of the story in chapters 17 and 18. They intersect at Micah's house. Micah has established a shrine there. The spies have lodged there. Now the larger force of the Danites have arrived there. And significantly, these five spies who'd been here before draw attention to the fact that Micah's house is a shrine. They tell the others, do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? So why do they do this? The text isn't really clear. You know, is it just like, hey, just FYI? No, I don't think so. 
Their statement, now therefore consider what you will do, has a sinister tone to it. To me, maybe it's just me, maybe it's my cynical cop mind, it sounds to me like they're suggesting a heist, which is exactly what they pull off. Micah's house is described here in the text like a compound um, uh, with a gate at the front, and there's houses, you know, so... He's a man of wealth. We, we know that from the beginning of the story with all the money his mom has and even though the fact he rips off his mom, you know, for the money but then gives it back and she kind of sets up him in his house of, his, his house of gods. But now notice that it was described as the house of the young Levite who is the father of Micah. The, this young boy has become the father. It's his, he's got the house there. And the Danite force... They show up, and most of the men remain at the gate, and they chat up the Nar. They're talking to him, you know, shooting the breeze, and maybe trying to distract him and draw his attention, you know. While the, while the spies, the five men, go into the, the house and grab the, the, the goods, and the Nair, the Nair, excuse me, confronts these sticky-fingered spies, and he's told... And I, just, I, I read this text and don't, in the story, it makes me, I just, I hear Humphrey Bogart's voice or Jimmy Cagney's voice in this. Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? Now, <laughs> do you hear a threat in that? There, I think there's an implied threat. You know, you got a choice here. Which is it? Because these Danites, well, we'll talk about the Danites a little bit more later. But the, the priest, what's his reaction? He's pleased with this new opportunity. Verse 20, the first part of it says this, And the priest's heart was glad, and he acts without delay. He grabs the stuff that the spies had lifted from the house. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. I'll, you know, I'll transport this stuff. And he goes into the middle of the, of the, of the tribe of the Danites as, as they set off in marching order. He has cast his lot in with the Danites. In receiving these cult objects from the hands of these thieves, uh, he is effectively, the Levite is effectively being reconsecrated, reordained by them. Remember that phrase in, in the original Hebrew means having his hand filled. That's ordination. His hand is being filled by the theft of the Danites. Now he has all of Micah's good stuff. So their departure with the kids, the cattle, and literally the heavy stuff, all that's up at the front with the armed men guarding the rear. What does that tell us? That tells us these guys expect to be pursued. They know the authorities are going to come after them. So the heavy hitters are at the back of the column, and all the, 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 the fragile stuff is at the front. But where is the Levite? He is right in the middle. He is, he's picked a spot where he's surrounded. He's at the safest spot possible. So he may be you know, calculating. He's not really courageous. He occupies the same spot that the Ark of the Covenant occupies every time Israel marches in the field. This is the center of their worship now this young Levite, and the cultic objects that he is carrying. Verses 22 and 26. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, 
and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you've come with such company? And he said, You take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what's the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. So Micah rounds up a posse and he gives chase, but he soon returns home after his life is threatened. The Danites are, they have become a rogue band of brigands. They are not the people of God anymore. Micah's story, remember, begins with a theft, and Micah was the thief. And now it ends with a theft, but it's been flipped. Micah is now the victim. This brings us to my third point. Point number three is false religion is ridiculous. False religion is ridiculous. Micah accuses the Danites of having taken or stolen his property both his gods and his priests. But the gods are his main concern. They're the first thing he mentions when he opens his mouth. He emphasizes his ownership rights. And and it's seen um, very clearly in the original language where there's three personal pronouns that he uses. And and our English translation kind of smooths that over for better readability. But but, But we lose the point that's being made here. And in the original translated Exactly, would would be my gods, which I made for myself. It's about him. These gods belong to him. This is highly ironic, really, when we think about it. Making a god or an idol for oneself as an Israelite, that's expressly forbidden in the second commandment. And yet he's making a claim to rightful ownership of forbidden objects, which is a ridiculously invalid claim. It's an invalid argument. It would be like, if you have something that's illegal to possess and someone steals it from you, you go to the police and say, he's stolen this thing from me, I want it back. And they're going to go, wait a minute, you're not allowed to have that. Let me see your ID. Furthermore, the very idea that one can make a god at all is absurd, isn't it? That, that, that just refutes the idea that, the, 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 that God is, or a god is connected to this if you can make it much less possess a god, a god that belongs to you that can be stolen or given away or, 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 or lost. This form of ridiculous, ridiculousness in religion we call sacramentalism, the belief that religious externals will bring divine favor. As an example, in our present text, the Levite is now a magical talisman to Micah and the Danites. And today, this is present in the false ideas that infant baptism, communion, and altar calls provide salvation to people other than it being a gift from God. And these are different from Micah's only in form, not in principle. I want you to see those connections. The truth is plain here. Micah's gods and his priests have failed him. His faith in them has been exposed for the folly that it always has been. It never was real. It may have seemed so to Micah as his his life went well. 
He was just enjoying common grace at that time. His life has revolved around these things, and without them, as he admits, he is nothing. His question, what do I have left, is an admission of this painful reality. His shrine is gone. Micah is completely undone. Now, verses 27 through 31. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So with these Danites here, we see another aspect of false religion, which is subjectivism. At this time, the legitimate house of God, as we're told in verse 31 here, was at Shiloh. The tent of the tabernacle was there. The Danites now have their own competing worship site, and they can worship as they please, and they can control worship also. This is very much like the modern concept of worship. The idea in the modern world being that that religion, that worship, is an individual affair, a matter of personal preference. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on on Judges, says this, and I quote from him because I, I think it's an excellent view that he expresses here. He says, To declare that faith, worship, and religion are regulated by royal revelation and subject to sovereign prescriptions would be surprising to many people, including some Christians, who would tell us, God is not so picky. This account, though, and the rest of Scripture declares otherwise. So our last point, point number four, false religion is tragic. False religion is tragic. I'm going to finish up quickly here. The Danites have performed a hat trick, a trifecta of paganism. We see this, though, what they do, what they've done. We see it from olden times, and we see it today. Note these things that they've done First, they have abandoned what the Lord has given them. Second, they have set up an idolatrous religious system. Third, they have murdered innocent people and stolen their city and land. In the process of doing this, they've reenacted Micah's folly, which grew from a bizarre idea in Micah's mother's mind. Remember, she was going to have the silversmith make an idol to consecrate to the one true God, an idol for the true God. But this idea grew to a reality in Micah's house of gods, and then it spreads to this entire tribe, to the, to the Danites, but it didn't stop there. No, later on, this sin infects an entire nation during the divided monarchy. Israel's king Jeroboam made two golden calves and set them up in Bethel, and guess where the other one was set up? In Dan, formerly Laish. And in 2 Kings 17 and 18, we're told of the consequences. 
Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. But Judah was spared only for a time, and they followed after Israel. 2 Kings 17, 19-20 Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. The story of Micah, the Levite, and the Danite serves as a cautionary tale, brethren. Although although we, human beings, may think our way is best, it is the way of the Lord and his way only that we are to follow. So the Bible takes us on a long journey. And we've been on this journey through Judges. And at times it's been dark, and it's going to get dark again. But we must remember, we must focus on the cross of Christ, the light of Christ that beckons us when we go through these dark passages. Do not lose sight of what's to come. We are to compare what happened with what God is going to do. And in our own lives, this applies to us. During dark times, do not get focused on those dark times. We know what the Lord has promised us. Our promised future is glorious. And there's nothing that can be done to take this from you if you are in Christ. That is the message that we are to take from these dark tales of what has happened before. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, of course. Father, we thank you for being with us on our journey, our journey together as your people through this life, our journey together as your church, Father, and our, our journey together as, as, as individual men, women, and, and, and youngsters. Father, we, we give thanks for the protection you've provided us. Father, we give thanks for the guidance that you give us. I pray for this. I pray that you fill us and guide us with your spirit, Father, in the week ahead. Father, that we may be living testaments to the word, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we may represent him everywhere. Father, we give thanks for the ability, the freedom that we may gather together as your people and worship and have fellowship with one another. Father, I ask you to bless my brothers and my sisters here. Father, your beloved, your bride of Christ. Father, bless us as we continue through this day. Bless us as we come back tonight for the evening service that we may honor you and glorify you in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.